Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hello, welcome to a year-end edition of Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. Congress has until the end of this week, December 21st, to pass appropriations for the roughly one quarter of the federal government that hasn't already been funded for fiscal 19. It's not totally clear they're going to make it in time. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. In the second segment, we'll talk about the recent court ruling on the Affordable Care Act and what Congress might do about it. Right now, though, we're going to dive into the state of play on the spending talks. Returning to the show to help us break it down are Bloomberg Government Budget and Appropriations Reporter Jack Fitzpatrick and BGov Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. Welcome back. Thanks for having us back. Jack, last time we had you on, just before the most recent two-week continuing resolution, President Trump's demands for $5 billion in border wall funding were the big sticking point in negotiations. Doesn't seem like that's changed much. Yeah, actually very little has changed in the last two weeks. They signed a two-week CR making Friday, December 21st, the new deadline. The one big development was really a kind of bizarre meeting between Trump, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi last week. And I guess the substantive thing that came out of that was that Schumer and Pelosi offered formally a full-year continuing resolution, either just for homeland security, and then you pass the other six remaining bills, or a full year CR for all of them. That meeting did not go well. A lot of people saw on TV them kind of yelling back and forth. At one point, Pelosi called the meeting a downward spiral. They are not really any closer to an agreement since then, to anybody's knowledge. Uh, And even late last week, you had lawmakers like John Cornyn saying there is no discernible plan to avoid a shutdown. So the question really is, is Trump willing to sign another CR, maybe a full year CR? It doesn't look like Democrats are going to cave and give him his $5 billion, but maybe can they offer some anomalies or anything at all to persuade him to sign that CR? Otherwise, we're probably looking at a shutdown. If Congress and the president can't come together on some kind of spending deal by Friday, as you mentioned, there will be a partial government shutdown. We know that defense, energy, education, labor, and health and human services departments all have their funding locked in, but a lot of other agencies would be affected by this. Lauren, what would a partial shutdown this month look like? So we referenced that 75% of the funding for this fiscal year is in place, about 25% isn't. But if you translate that to the list of government agencies, Many, many agencies are affected. Several cabinet departments, agriculture, commerce, justice, homeland, obviously, which is uh, an important component in this debate, transportation, HUD, and many of the independent agencies would be unfunded starting 12.01 a.m. on Saturday. What that means in real world, world terms depends on the agency and depends on how it interprets the law. Many government employees across the government would be exempt, meaning that they would still work during a government shutdown, but that they wouldn't be paid. Others would just be furloughed and may have to go in on the first day of a shutdown, wind down operations, and then go on leave for the rest of the time. Um, Some of the numbers vary by agency. I think our colleagues at Bloomberg News reported that HUD would have about 87% of its employees furloughed. But if you look at the Homeland Security Department, when they put out a plan last March, they said about 212,000 of their 242,000 workers would be exempt, would stay on the job. So that means people would still patrol the borders. They would still check your baggage at the airports around the country, which is important given the holiday travel season. 
president. So other agencies have interpreted it differently over the years. Do you shut down a national park or do you leave it open without staff to take fees? And we'll be looking to see over the course of this week if a shutdown is really coming to fruition, how these agencies are going to implement such a shutdown. And when you say exempt, that's kind of replaced the language they used to use, employees were essential. Right, there's exempt, there's accepted, you know, different terms are used, but basically it's that the function they are performing for the federal government is too important to go away. So a lot of the administrative staff may be out of work, but the actual people on the beat in law enforcement at the airport have to stay on the job because those functions can't stop. The two CRs we've already seen this year have carried some program extensions along with them, notably including grants under the Violence Against Women Act, uh, an extension of the National Flood Insurance Program, and the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, also known as TANF or Welfare. Where do those stand at this point? Those are looped into the same process. Now, sometimes an authorization being out of place for a little while doesn't matter as much because the authorization sets the programs up and may make some mandatory funding available. But if those are also riding on the CR, and aren't extended, they could be in limbo for the next week or two or however long a shutdown would run. Looking at the other alternatives that may fall into place this week, what would the operational difference between uh, potentially a full year CR and a regular spending bill be? Well, agencies hate CRs. They want a full year funding bill in place because those bills, in addition to handing out money, also put conditions in terms and reflect the real world challenges facing agencies. So for example, what a department needs one year may be different than what it needs the next year. So the anomalies that Jack mentioned are gonna be a big part of this discussion if we do go into full year CR mode. Yeah, overall, this is basically, they put in a lot of work, the appropriators did, into determining what needs an increase and what needs a decrease. Some of those are obvious and maybe could get into a full year CR. Things like an increase for the Census Bureau because we're getting closer to the 2020 Census. That's in the Commerce, Justice, Science one. But then you have things like in the Homeland Security Appropriations Bill, they wanted to provide $750 million for a heavy icebreaker for the Coast Guard. That's something they didn't fund in the previous year, and that's a lot of money. So that's, that's something, for example, that they really want to include in an actual spending bill that would likely miss out if there were a CR for Homeland Security. And the other difference is that when you do a full year bill, you have a committee report that has a lot of language in it that, you know, lobbyists fight hard to get language in those committee reports. And you technically, you know, tend not to have one of those when you have a CR. So a lot of the work that goes into an appropriations bill gets lost when you have a full year CR that many people in town would be unhappy with. So looking ahead to early next year when the Democrats take over, it seems like no matter what the outcome this week, there will still be some unfinished business in January. But it doesn't seem like things are going to get much easier than with Democrats in control. How do you see the dynamic playing out come January? Well, as far as the spending negotiations go, their offer, the Democrats, is a full year CR because they want to take care of this and end this debate for the year so that they don't go into the time period when they would rather be starting work on fiscal 2020 and everything else that Congress has to do as they come in and, and start a new Congress. So if, if they were to do a short Order CR, which has been discussed, a CR maybe into January, February, even May has been mentioned. I don't see any evidence that the Democrats would change their offer and essentially redo negotiations on a real spending bill. There isn't a plan from Democrats, for example, to put out their own Homeland Security appropriations bill as a negotiating tactic to kind of stake out their
higher ground. They've made it clear the offer is continuing resolution for Homeland Security and really nothing else. They can pass the other six bills, but the Homeland Security uh, negotiations from their side have come down to, we want to get this done so we can move on to other things, and our, our only offer is a continuing resolution. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Lauren. We'll be right back to look at the court decision that overturned the Affordable Care Act. Last Friday, federal district court judge Reed O'Connor ruled that the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, is unconstitutional. He based his decision on Congress's repeal of the individual mandate penalties, saying that because an earlier Supreme Court decision upheld the mandate as a tax penalty, repealing that part renders the entire law unconstitutional. It's not just the individual marketplaces that were affected by this. It also includes protections for pre-existing conditions, subsidies for low-income enrollees, and expansion of Medicaid. Here to help us understand what this means and how Congress is likely to react is Bloomberg Government Senior Health Policy Reporter Alex Ruoff. Hey, Alex. Uh, hi, how are you doing? So what's the immediate effect of this ruling? Is it going to affect those who signed up during open enrollment, which just ended in most places this weekend? So it has no immediate effect on the markets right now. Uh, the way the ruling came out, it's not. Uh, it doesn't have an immediate impact. It's not the way essentially it works is it doesn't essentially shut anything down. It's waiting many more rulings. This is sort of the very beginning, one would say, of a long process that's going to involve a lot of appeals, a lot of more opinions. But, you know, it's a a real effect was basically confusion over the weekends. There was a lot of uncertainty about what exactly the ruling meant, what exactly it would do. And it came, you know, right at the end of enrollment when people, the last day, which is the busiest day of people signing up for these, uh, you know, insurance plans. What's the response been from lawmakers? Democrats have really picked this up. This is definitely in line with what Democrats in Congress want to talk about, which is, you know, the Trump administration's work uh, really, you know, coming after the health care law, coming after people's health insurance. You know, they've been the loudest and will be the loudest voices on this issue, you know, complaining, talking about taking action. But some leading Republicans have talked about picking up and making sure that a lot of the most popular parts of Obamacare, the protections for pre-existing conditions, a lot of the Medicare pieces remain enshrined in law. And that might be where there's some agreement here or about some work to be done. So let's say this comes to a place where Congress has to step in. How much common ground do you think they can actually find on this? We know, as you're saying, Democrats want to maintain the law as much as possible, and Republicans have said they support pre-existing condition protections, but the proposals we've seen from them so far wouldn't necessarily reinstate all those protections. So how much do you think could actually get done in Congress? There's a general rule, I think, in healthcare uh, policy that how much will get done, the safe answer is always nothing. There is a, not a lot of common ground here. I mean, they've been arguing just about having to stabilize the law itself. And they couldn't agree on that. Even when people like Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, who do get along on a lot of really complicated things, couldn't reach agreement on some simple things that are relatively simple in this market. I think enshrining popular parts of the law or finding common ground on something they've been fighting about for the better part of a decade seems unlikely. It seems like this is going to be pretty partisan. I don't think Mitch McConnell 
wants to put up a uh, Obamacare replacement in his time as the majority leader. So I believe the safe bet is nothing. But I think nibbling around the edges might be possible. Opportunities to signal interest in how the law should be shaped, how the law should be reconfigured is certainly possible. Things that kind of tee up the real policy change we might see I would say 2020, 2021, I think when there might be a different landscape or, you know, maybe not a divided Congress. I think that might be a little little heavy lift. And so where does the administration stand on all this? When President Trump took office, his Justice Department declined to defend the, the lawsuit, saying that they agreed with challenges that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, along with the pre-existing condition protections. But they didn't go as far as the court did, saying that it applied to the entire law. So what are we seeing from the White House on on what their next steps might be? Well, uh, Trump this morning really declared it a a positive, a net positive. He seems very excited at the idea that uh, the Obamacare will be overturned. Officially, the White House's posture has always been uh, Obamacare is terrible. We need to replace it. We need to remove it by essentially any means you can. But, I mean, there's a lot of details to this. Definitely, if you... Seema Verma, Alex Azar, the heads of HHS and CMS, they do not want to see parts of of, um, Obamacare taken away by far. I mean, their drug policy plan resides on on the ACA. The people they pay, you know, the ACA authorizes the personnel who effectively push out, you know, innovation center, their Medicare uh, payment policies, their drug payment policies. They do not want to see that go away. The administration talks broadly about this in some ways, but I think if you talk to, you know, a lot of the people in the agencies, they will tell you there's tons of parts of this law we cannot see disappear. It's our ideology, our work here cannot see it go away. But for the most part, the administration's, you know, they're, they've stepped away from this law. They, when the Justice Department decided not to defend the lawsuit, they took an official stance of we're not, you know, we don't believe this should be defended. And there's some cheerleading at the top, but at the bottom, there's really some fear of what the implications might be and the impact on the healthcare law. Thanks, Alex. As Alex said, there are lots of appeals to come, and by all indications, this will end up at the, the Supreme Court. So thanks for coming on to uh, help us break this down. Yeah, no problem. BGov subscribers, be sure to follow Alex's reporting and all our coverage at Bloomberg Government. That does it for this episode of Suspending the Rules. We'll be taking a short hiatus during the holidays, so we'll talk to you all again in 2019. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.